Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. According to a 2014 survey published by the American Bible Society, the number of people who consider the Bible just a book written by men has doubled in just three years. In this week's episode, Richard and I examine factors contributing to this trend through the lens of the Gospel of John, chapter 20, and the liturgical use of Psalm 24. You may be surprised where the breadcrumbs lead. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to the 15th episode of the Bible as Literature podcast. So, Father, this Sunday was Thomas Sunday. And when you were preaching this Sunday, we were talking about a survey that you heard about and how that shows the way that people misunderstand the origins of Scripture. It was this interesting survey that was conducted where more of Americans reported that they believe the Bible was written by human beings and that it is not a divine text. It's an interesting survey because, of course, those of us who are in biblical studies will readily admit that the Bible was written by human beings, very obviously. But I was interested in understanding where the rebellion is in that statement. What are people rebelling against when they make the claim or they profess, no, I don't believe this is divine. I think it's human words. And in my reflection in the sermon on Sunday, I found myself going back to the question of authorship. I think a lot of people question it because they say, well, if it was divine, then it would be perfect. If it was divine, it wouldn't have any mistakes. If it were divine, it wouldn't have any contradictions. It wouldn't contradict science. I think that's probably what most people think. Well, and it goes a little deeper because the church has contradicted science historically. The church has been on the wrong side of many discussions, and unfortunately, because in the Western tradition, there's been an attempt historically to link the authority of Scripture to the authority of the church, where the church was responsible for promoting Scripture. When people see the church stumble in such profound and offensive ways, they project that onto Scripture. And now you have in the modern church a deeper dilemma where, again, people are looking for a human authority that they can hang their hat on. And they're looking so hard for that human authority that they push the argument and make the claim that the church wrote the Bible. Well, if you look at the history and the track record of the church, you can see where that argument discredits Scripture and, as Paul says, makes the gospel a mockery among the nations. Right. And I think even on a personal level, I think a lot of individuals decide on whether they can believe in the authority or scripture or not by the credibility of its so-called adherence. Right. So, but if you look at the gospel reading from Sunday, the first Sunday after Pascha in the Eastern tradition, it's very clear in John that not only did the church not write the gospel, not only is the gospel not the word of the church, but the characters who represent and embody the church in the narrative don't understand or even recognize the gospel when they receive it after the resurrection. Right. It was interesting because you mentioned that in order to understand the narrative about Thomas that we read on that day, you have to understand the entire chapter. So you went all the way back to Mary Magdalene who goes to the tomb after the death of Jesus. Right. So you run to the tomb to see your friend and he's there and you see him, but you don't recognize him until he speaks. What's going on here? Why is it that you can look someone straight in the face, the Torah made flesh, your teacher, Jesus Christ, walking around, and you cannot recognize the gospel teaching in the flesh until the gospel teaching speaks a word to you, until you receive instruction from the teaching. It's because you yourself don't know the teaching well enough. 
It's not something that you've internalized, let alone produced. It's something that you don't have a grasp of. It has to instruct you. And you know, a thing that just struck me about it too, not only did she not recognize him, she thought he was the gardener. Who would go to a tomb expecting to see a gardener there? There's something about her going to the garden and not recognizing what was supposed to be happening there in the garden. It almost harkens back to Eve in my mind. The metaphor of a gardener certainly harkens back to Genesis and to God's role through his Torah, his instruction, as the life giver, the one who creates the setting for life. So she's looking for someone who can provide life but she still doesn't know what exactly she's looking for in the story, who she's looking for, Jesus Christ. Even if she thinks she does, she's confused again until he speaks. Right, and I think you mentioned this too in, in your sermon, but it reminds me of the road to Emmaus when the disciples yes. meet some guy who was Jesus, and only once he started explaining how the Messiah was supposed to die, not only did he explain, but he explained from Scripture how the Messiah was supposed to die. Only then were they on the actual road to understanding. And then once they broke bread together, then they were actually able to see, oh, this was Jesus because Jesus whom they saw disappeared as soon as that bread was broken and then they knew. So as soon as they no longer could see, suddenly they could understand. In the hearing, seeing in scripture is not with the eyes, which are the foundation of human reason, right? right. You see and you measure, so it's with the ears because what you're hearing contradicts what you see in scripture always. You're absolutely right. In both cases, it's the proclamation of the word. This goes against normal language. I mean, what do we say when we understand somebody? Oh, I see. Correct. But this goes against that. No, no, you see, but you don't understand. This is a contradiction. And this, by the way, is how scripture delineates the divine from human. The way in which an addressee of scripture recognizes that something isn't from God is if it makes sense humanly speaking. I don't mean unintelligible, I don't mean illogical, because scripture has its own logic, but it is the logic of scripture which is fundamentally different and in opposition to the reasonable logic of human beings. Well, I mean, actually in Isaiah, the Lord shows how human logic is faulty because he says, just because your idol has lips, doesn't mean he can speak. Even though you see a mouth, doesn't mean he can speak. Seeing doesn't matter. Do you hear something coming out of that mouth? Then you've got something. Right, and the other thing that's interesting about this whole section of John is that women in scripture represent communities. So Mary Magdalene certainly represents the church, you know, struggling to receive and then grapple with the gospel at the empty tomb. But the apostles do not represent the church. Remember, the apostles are not members of the church. The apostle is one who is sent by God to establish a church. So where the church community in the person of Mary Magdalene was at least straining to receive, the apostles in John had locked themselves in a room and shut the door. Out of fear. Out of fear. And it reminds me very much of the tradition in Eastern Mediterranean churches, not in the Russian tradition, but in the Antiochian and Greek traditions, of the gospel breaking free from the bonds of slavery in the tomb, which is a metaphor for the temple in Jerusalem. 
breaking free from bondage in the temple and going out into the world among the nations. But then at the end of the procession on Pascha night, you have to knock on the door because just like the apostles, the church doesn't want the teaching to come inside. The teaching broke free and now the teaching is coming back from the nations to the church and the door is shut and you have to pound on the door with the Psalter. And there's Lift up your gates, O ye princes. You know, who is the king of yeah, glory? Yeah, there's someone. And that's what's interesting is there's a voice coming from inside the church asking who is the king of glory correct and this is what you would expect reading about the disciples and mary magdalene i mean this is what we saw in thomas do i know this is jesus christ i don't know if i know this is him. so there are obvious debates among liturgicists about whether this is a late edition or whether it's correct and so forth but i think that this is all secondary or tertiary for me the main issue is whether or not it functions scripturally. And it's very prophetic that the word would come out of Jerusalem and then try to come back in for the sake of Jerusalem and be shut out. And so Jesus, I mean, this is, it's mentioned more than once in the reading, despite the fact that the door was shut. No, it's just amazing. Was in their midst. It's amazing liturgically that the gospel has to bang down the doors of the church Absolutely. in order to get in. That the liturgical rite assumes that the gospel is not there. It's powerful. It's absolutely. That's why in St. Elizabeth, over the entrance of the church, over the door, we have the saying from the gospel, he is not here. He has been raised. So if you want to find the risen Lord, if you want to find the gospel at work, don't come to the inner sanctum of the womb of your little community. You have to go out into the world among the nations where he's doing his business for the sake of his father's yeah. will. You know, it's interesting too, because in that liturgical rite, the entirety of the membership of the church is outside. And the bishop originally, the bishop is the one who enters into the church. That's what gives the church. I and mean, this even agrees with what Schmemann is saying. Originally, when liturgy started, liturgy did not start until the bishop holding the gospel enters in, that's the only time that liturgy could happen. According to Schmemann, everyone just waited around outside until the bishop came with the gospel to enter in. He did not come with the gifts. The gifts come later on in the service. Once he comes with the gospel, yeah. that's when liturgy begins. Yeah. So in this way, even if it may not have been original to pound on the doors, there's something from the original rite that the bishop has to come with the gospel to get inside before it can start because we don't assume that the gospel is there. The same thing, what's the prayer we say? O Lord, Heavenly King, come and abide in us. If you have to ask the Holy Spirit to come and abide in you, I guess we're assuming he's not already there. You know, that's the key. That's the key. And people make these arguments, you know, Richard, about scripture. Well, yes, this is how people talk, right? It's, it's, it's heresy. Well, yes. You know, the church did write the Bible, Father Mark, but it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? There was no church when the Torah and the Nevi'im and the wisdom writings were handed down. And it's very clear for those who are knowledgeable that the New Testament is a recapitulation of the teaching that was handed down. The whole movement of the New Testament is an effort to overcome Roman tyranny and human tyranny generally by evangelizing, by putting Caesar, the great tyrant, under the boot of Moses instead of, you know, the oppression that was taking place, but not with the sword, with the teaching. I mean, this is Sinai. Yeah, exactly. So I use words like blasphemy and heresy when we talk about this because the system of scripture is intent upon demonstrating that man is not God and systematically intent upon demonstrating that what comes from the human being leads to the grave. 
And you have a clear example in the American setting where we've worked so hard to convince people that the authority lies on the church, not in God. I know there are clever arguments to say, no, that's not what we're saying. But ultimately, if you look at it functionally, that's the claim that's being made. Well, anybody with an ounce of intelligence can tell that we, the clergy, and we, the members of our various denominations and churches, are not God. So of course you're going to have a rebellion and a rejection. And the scandal is that that rebellion and rejection is our fault and will be held accountable. Well, in scripture itself, John already knew this is the danger. This is why if you look at this chapter in John, on the one hand, you have Mary Magdalene who's looking for Jesus where? In the tomb. And you have the disciples who are doing what? Hiding out of fear locked up in a room. This is where we go. We either go to where it's dead or we go and we, out of fear we go and hide. But Jesus is trying to get through to Mary and literally trying to get through to the disciples. And still trying to get through and to he's us. Still, and even when he talks to Thomas, yeah. he still has to get through because Thomas still thinks that he has to be able to touch in order to understand. At least Mary was a little bit better because she understood once she heard. Thomas, even when he said, my peace is upon you, Thomas didn't understand because he wasn't around. He didn't even show up. No, no, and I always joke with the church school kids that Thomas is like a Batman character. Tommy Two-Face, I mean, Didymus means, you know, double-sided or two-faced because not only does he not put his trust in the written word or the word of Jesus, but he backstabs Jesus. When he's not there, he's talking behind Jesus back, yeah, this is, I don't believe any of this. When Jesus is there, there's all this drama, my Lord and my God. But it's, for those who have ears to hear, it's very shameful. It's embarrassing. You should feel embarrassed for Thomas because he's exposed himself as being two-faced towards Jesus. Right, and then Jesus gives him the backhanded compliment, blessed are you. But also, blessed are those who hear and believe. And of course, in John, there's this classic prophetic mechanism in the diptych John revelation of the separation between the one who receives the word from God and the one to whom they hand it and to whom they hand it and to whom they hand it before you, the addressee, are even in the equation. So just as he belittles Thomas, right? He belittles ultimately even the addressees who hear because you might want to laugh at Thomas or scoff at him for his hypocrisy, but Thomas received the message firsthand. You're receiving it second, third, fourth, fifth hand in writing. So it's emasculating everybody and forcing, locking the conversation on the authority of the written text that you, the addressee, the church, have no control over. This is the point that I'm getting at, Dr. Benton. It's all about being a hearer. Yes. The whole thing revolves around God who speaks a word. And all of the prophets and apostles and disciples who are privy to that conversation are running around with notepads like, I mean, this is how it functions literarily. Right. Forget the literal history. But as a metaphor, it's like when you see the photographs of North Korea with their the emperor who, or the king who believes he's the son of God or they worship him as a leader and so forth. Every time he appears in a public photo op, all of his generals and chief political officers have a notebook out. I mean, he's a sicko. <laughs> That's how it functions. Now, at the end of the gospel reading, there is this beautiful allusion to one and two kings and to other areas of the Older Testament where John uses this phraseology that there are many things that happen that aren't written, but these are written. And again, unfortunately, because of our own illiteracy and our desire to lift ourselves up as a community above God. That's exactly the sin that's at work here. People will hear this verse and they'll say, oh, well, you see, Father Mark, you see, Dr. Benton, John is telling you 
that there's all these stories about Jesus and all of these things out there that if you want to know them, you have to talk to the church because the church knows, which is a delusional statement because I've yet to meet someone who spoke to Jesus Christ personally and witnessed these events. So I don't know who in the church knows what these supposed other things are. So never mind that it's delusional. Textually, in 1 and 2 Kings, it's written in order to show you that there's going to be all kinds of things that are written and said that are irrelevant. This is written so that hearing, not seeing, you may put your trust in the instruction that brought down the Roman Empire and still has the power to save North America. That's the key. And it's sad that it's bastardized to say the opposite. Seeing is not believing, Dr. Benton. Seeing is not believing. <laughs> we hear as best we can. Indeed. Thanks so much for your time. All right. This week. Thank you. Thank you. Just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening.